Hi everyone, this is Johnny from Brooklyn Fitness, and I'm here with one of the other editors, Yusuf. Hey everyone. And we're here today with Eric Helm from 3D Muscle Journey. Hi. Hey there. Um, do you want to introduce yourself for people who aren't familiar with you? Sure. Um, so yeah, like, like they said, my name is Eric Helms. Um, I am a uh, PNBA pro-qualified natural bodybuilder, um, and I've been competing in uh, powerlifting since about 2006 uh, as well, and most recently I've been pretending to compete in Olympic lifting, um, and hopefully that will turn into actually legitimately looking like I'm doing Olympic lifting soon. Um, but yeah, more importantly than that, um, I've got a, a sincere passion for the uh, the science related to this sport, um, well, all, all the sports really, and anyone who's looking to make changes in their in their body composition or their uh, their physical fitness, specifically strength. Um, and I really enjoy helping people, and I, I want to try to put out um, information that is that is pragmatic and evidence based, um, and. Basically, that's what 3D Muscle Journey does, um, and primarily we act as coaches to uh, natural competitive bodybuilders, helping them through prep and to develop a more uh, balanced relationship with the sport, and then also helping uh, your your everyday Joes, and uh, we do seminars and all that kind of stuff. And then lastly, I'm also um, a researcher currently working on my, my postgraduate studies, which are essentially in the fields of strength and, and bodybuilding. So, in summary, uh, just a very impressive man. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it. Um, so, I think one of the larger topics that we want to talk about, could, um, if you could just describe your, your philosophy on nutrition in general and how mm -hmm. you approach diets for people you train. Sure. It's pretty posh these days to be kind of aware of, of, of food and, and kind of talking in macronutrients versus food sources. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of the traditional bodybuilding approach is you've got a handful of, of foods that work um, that are kind of seen as bodybuilding friendly, and then you develop diets based on that. And then to either adjust them when, when things don't go well, you either reduce certain foods or increase certain foods, etc. And now, you know, in the more... I would say the more contemporary era of bodybuilding where we've started to identify, you know, the specific nutrient values and it allows you to do things like, you know, when you cut your, your rice, not actually cutting your protein, you know, since there is protein in rice and that's not just carbohydrates. So, so basically using macronutrients to guide your, your nutri nutritional guidelines. And I think that's, that's great. That's a great place to start. Um, but it doesn't give a whole lot of respect to how much individual variation there are among individuals. So uh, the way I, for example, with you guys, the way I was setting up your diet uh, or your nutrition plan was so that we had a goal of change in body mass uh, week to week, and then we would adjust uh, the macronutrients that you had based on whether we were meeting that goal or not. And then having some other variables uh, that we would pay attention to, like um, how do you feel on the diet? You know, are you are you losing or gaining strength? Are you uh, losing or gaining sanity? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, how are you do? Is the diet sustainable? So modifying uh, the macros in almost an auto-regulated fashion, uh, based on the feedback we're getting. So if we can get a, a very good reading on on body weight change which I like to do by averaging, you know, a period of time and a number of weigh-ins and then keeping the same weigh-in conditions and then making sure that performance is holding up 
Um, and if you really want to to go to the uh, the efforts to get some body composition testing, use all that information to decide whether the diet is working or not. Um, and working meaning is it going is it fast enough weight loss, too fast weight loss, uh, too slow? Am I losing uh, too much muscle mass uh, or, or what have you? And then uh, making small adjustments to shift it back towards where you want to be. Um, this is something that I do as a coach. You know, when I get my weekly reports um, or, or more frequent reports from whoever it is um, and something that I when I consult like I did with you guys that I teach people to do on their own and kind of give them kind of a, uh, a system like, OK, so if your weight loss falls between here to here, we won't change it. If it falls below, we'll subtract, you know, X grams of carbohydrate. And if it falls past that or losing too fast, we'll add X grams of carbohydrate. So um I just found myself a few years ago just uncomfortable just kind of throwing out um, macronutrient numbers at people that made sense for their gender, height, age, age weight, and, and a few other variables that I knew from experience could have been you know, off by 30 to 50% just from that individual variation that I've experienced in working with people. Um, even if it would have worked for 60 to 80% of people, I, I just didn't, know, I didn't like knowing that there was 2 out of 10 people or 3 out of 10 people out there who I was giving macros to, and it just was not working for them. Yeah, we certainly um, like this sort of outcome-based decision-making approach, which, uh, which you take, I think. And as you said, it, it accounts for those individual differences where we've certainly had some clients that are off the bell curve, and to just give them a one-size-fits-all program, you'd really be stabbing in the dark to make results yep. of them. Uh, often, yeah, as you said, th their maintenance calories could be up to a thousand out from yep. what you would estimate from, from the formulas or anything. So it really is just a case of, I guess, just knowing, you know, if the client knows their body and what they respond to, that, that certainly helps. But uh, mm. in terms of being able to dynamically adjust the macronutrients according to what what the results are. Exactly. It, it, it may take, take a few weeks, weeks of adjusting, but eventually they will get to what makes the more sense than where they started. One one thing with that, Eric, is I'm from from experience with working with you. You're quite precise with the the weight changes week on week. Mm. What are your thoughts on like confounding variables like storing water or you know being slightly bloated one day, say you had a minor food intolerance or whatever, which caused some some subcutaneous water storage, and that might confound the the weight gain or weight loss over a week, and then lead to perhaps less than optimal decision-making with regards to dropping calories too quickly or not dropping them quickly enough, et cetera. Right. So there's a couple of safeguards you can, you can use in here. Um, the most powerful of them is that you're, if you, if you run a, what I like to use a seven day running average. Um, the reason I use a seven day running average is that people's behaviors uh, tend to match up uh, week to week. You know, you'll work, Monday through Friday and potentially or, or maybe a different schedule. But for most people, uh, your wake up schedule, your sleeping schedule, the times you eat meals and uh, their compositions and your behaviors and energy expenditure, um, the best fit and match will be one week compared to the next week. So so doing a, a seven day average um, can account for a lot of those things. Like if you have a specific day where you've got a uh, a wacky food intake or um, you go out to eat and, and it's if it, that recurs at least, That'll get factored in. Um, that said, there's always there's always can be things that can that can adjust your your, your seven day average um, that that are a little outside of the what would be covered by by you know just just averaging it. So if you were to go on vacation, or if you were to make a massive change to food source, or if you started taking creatine, or 
if you started working two hours earlier, so all your weigh-ins came in earlier, that would be something you'd be very aware of. So you, um, anytime you have a big systemic change to your behaviors that could affect weight gain, uh, and the things could be uh, changing in, in waking up, uh, changing in uh, sodium levels, changing in uh, carbohydrate intake levels, um, or eating a meal a lot later versus you, you normally do, if, if that happens on a systemic basis, then you can basically give yourself a week of not paying attention to the weight. Um, and, uh, and that will normally cover the vast majority of, of those kinds of fluctuations that will be confounding variables. So as long as you're systematically wacky, then uh, you're okay. Exactly. Yeah. If you're consistently inconsistent, then we'll have some consistency. <laughs> so, so from that, then, do you, rather than using a calorie calculator to determine someone's maintenance, do you say, if we're losing a pound a week, then that would equate to roughly 3,500 calorie deficit, which is 500 calories a day, therefore your maintenance intake is roughly X? You know, you, you could do that. I, I don't find myself always uh, needing to calculate a maintenance. Typically, what I'll do is I'll, I'll well, there, okay. So there's kind of a case of of, of um, good, better, best, and and best, in my opinion, is someone who comes to me and they've been tracking their their calories for a while, and they've been tracking their weight, and I can look at the trends and and get an idea of what I think uh, their maintenance is and and where they need to be to lose or to gain at, at a rate that that makes sense for their development and their goals. Um, because, you know, maintenance calories is a moving target. That's, that's the whole reason why it needs to be a dynamic system, uh, because it, it will, you know, the amount of, of calories that you need to, to, to achieve a certain rate of weight loss or weight gain is going to change as your energy expenditure changes and you have, uh, any kind of metabolic adaptations. So, um, so like I said, so best is, is they come with, come to me with data and then I can kind of you know, optimize things and set them up and, 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 and base that on, on basically the maintenance that they have shown me that they have, um, you know, and then better would be, they've got some ideas of where they're at. Um, they have, you know, prior years and maybe they have limited information to give me and we can make an educated guess about where they need to be. And I can kind of shoot from the hip and then set them up with a dynamic, you know, kind of system like we talked about that within a couple of weeks, they'd be sorted out. Um, good and I don't really consider this good, it's just better than just giving them macros and nothing else, is they don't know how much they're eating. Um, they know what their goals are, and I basically uh, use a calculator um, and just determine a set amount of macros that I think makes sense for either their goals, and then within anywhere from three to five weeks, it will become adjusted as they lose or gain too much or too little weight um, to get them to where they need to be. Um, so... You, you end up working like you know your maintenance, but not actually caring what that specific number is, um, unless your goal is to not gain weight or not lose weight, if you wanted to be right at maintenance. But typically, the way I get there is by slowly adding in food, and then once you start to gain weight, we just take it back and then and then hang out. So, um, you know, I don't necessarily chase trying to figure out what maintenance is. I like to keep the system dynamic because maintenance changes. Okay, that that definitely makes sense. So, f following on from that, then um, I read an article that you wrote which discussed how um, hormones are the result of eating, rather than mm. the other way around, where people view the goal of a diet plan to control insulin or manage growth hormone, etc. What are your thoughts on the roles that hormones play within a diet, and 
how much is it just calorie balance and how much do things like insulin and growth hormone influence the results? That's a great question. I, I think, you know, it, so often um, what we might quote unquote call bro science these days is good science. It's just good science out of context, you know, um, like, yeah, yes, insulin functions to store fat. However, if you don't, if you realize there, if there's not excess fat to store, it doesn't matter. You know, it's kind of like a, a guy in a warehouse putting boxes on a wall. If there's no boxes, it doesn't matter that his role is to put the box on the wall. There's no boxes, you know. So if you have an excess amount of energy, yes, insulin is going to be storing, uh, you know, that that in some in some way. But if there is not excess energy, then insulin's got nothing to do. And I mean, of course, that's something to do. But you know, carrying with this metaphor. Um, so I think, I think basically what that article was trying to get people to realize was that, um, hormones are more the process versus the, the thing we're trying to manipulate. And, uh, because you can run into all kinds of examples of, um, trying to manipulate hormones, uh, like, you know, eating around training, being manipulated to try to get a growth hormone response. And we're forgetting that, that growth hormones essentially, trying to provide nutrients for us, you know, by, by pulling from fat. And it's not that we, it's not purely just there for, for, you know, being a growth hormone. Um, so trying to, you basically, you know, when growth hormone pops up in response to us not eating, it's kind of going, oh, you don't, you're not going to eat? Okay, I guess I can pull from fat stores. And um, a, a lot of it is just too focused with the magnifying glass and forgetting that it's not the change at 6 p.m. Of, of, your, of your body fat that matters. It's the net change over time. It's like a bank account. You know, if if you only have six hundred dollars and your rent is is seven hundred dollars and then your rent hasn't isn't due yet, you wouldn't spend all your money uh, because you have to think about tomorrow. You know, it's so it, and, and your your body's the same way. Even if you ate all your food at 10 p.m. and ate nothing the rest of the day, some people would go, oh, my God, you're going to store all that food you ate at 10 p.m. as fat. And then they kind of forget, well, what would be happening the other 23 hours of the day? Um, so. So, and of course, you'd be burning through that fat. So, it's just kind of, I was just trying to basically put things in, in context and and back off that magnifying glass so they can see what happens over the course of time. So, yes, there are uh, hormonal adaptations um, that happen during dieting, which 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 make, make it harder, but it does come down to maybe manipulating, you know, macronutrients at a certain point or just having to cut calories lower, you know. Um, and I think a lot of the times just, just having that information can be more confusing than helpful because it doesn't necessarily change what you do about it as the person dieting or the person coaching someone through a dieting phase. I think that's a good point because, I mean, often you see some people that will use the, the science as a justification for their terrible behavior. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you, you have people who convince themselves that they're backloading uh, and they're saying, you know, well, I've translocated glut force efficiently tonight, so I can eat this tub of ice cream. And uh, you know, it, it's really just uh, faulty logic. But I, I think if they're if they're That's able great. to justify it with the science, then uh, it almost legitimizes it in their mind. But as you said, it, it's really the net calorie balance at the end of the week that's the most important thing. Yeah, and, and, and especially if you're not trying to get to the extremes of, you know, contest condition. Like, I mean, when you've got someone trying to get from, from you know, 7% to, to 4 or 5%, yeah, some things like stubborn fat protocols or, uh, you know, going low carbs even though you're not necessarily changing calories or using, you know, 
refeeds strategically, uh, you know, kind of quote unquote get around the energy balance. But really, what that's doing is just changing the energy expenditure. And and because we can't really track that accurately, it seems like nutritional voodoo, you know, um, or, or certain areas not liberating fat stores, and and then your body being forced to utilize other substrates. So you find yourself flattening out while your legs don't get leaner. So, I mean, there are things like that, but. I mean, honestly, 90% of it is, is finding the right calorie intake and then having a, a reasonable macronutrient spread that makes sense and being able to adjust that. And, you know, that sounds simple, and it might be simple compared to trying to manipulate, you know, GLUT4 and, and your, your insulin and growth hormone levels, but truly it, it does take a lot of tracking of variables and um, consistency and precision and being able to have a dynamic diet. You know, the sort of that well, that fine tuning and stubborn fat protocols is really just that fine tuning, and that you can't break the laws of physics. No, I sure hope you can't break the laws yeah. of physics. Or we're gonna have some problems. Yeah. <laughs> with, with existing, you know. <laughs> so if um, taking the idea of calorie balance, then if you had somebody who, um, yeah, a fairly standard. Uh, dietary protocol would be to have some days which were an energy deficit and then counterbalancing that with one or two days a week which may be a calorie surplus. If you were to have, say, um, five days of deficit which was counterbalanced by two days of surplus which were equal and opposite, do you think that that would yield a net, um, no net gain or loss? Or do you think that would still equal fat loss? So, okay, so just to clarify, so we've got the amount of surplus from two quote-unquote refeed days is equal to the deficit from five uh, low days? Correct, yeah. You know, to be honest, that's probably what most people do. I mean, they, they go to work, they're eating controlled, you know, they're sitting at their desk, and then on the weekends they go out and, you know, drink with their buddies on Saturday, and then Sunday, you know, go, 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 go grab some pizza with their wife, <laughs> you know? You know, the, the warrior diet or these diets where you, you basically you binge on the weekends is kind of like, paying attention to doing the things you might normally do often, is at least if you're a fitness-minded individual, where during the week where you have a regimented kind of plan, you're good Monday through Friday, and then on the weekends, you just kind of lose it a little bit. Um, so we've got a pretty good data set there that tells us that, that yeah, that won't really do much, in my opinion. Um, I think if, if a, a refeed is only a refeed if you were actually in a, in a diet, you know, so if you were just in a slight deficit, and then you get yourself in enough of a surplus to counteract those five days of deficit. It won't really make a difference. You know, when I do high days and low days, you're still in a systemic deficit for sure. Um, and those high days have, they're, they're, I mean, yeah, you're still you're in a big net deficit by the end of the seven-day period. And normally enough to lose, you know, a pound or two uh, for the average person. Like, go back to what we were saying before with, the, you know, the hormone-based diets rather than focusing on calories. There does mm-hmm. seem to be this, this attitude that um, you know a massive refeed once or twice a week will will do nothing but accelerate fat loss. So yeah, it's interesting to hear your perspective on that. Um, so moving on from calories, then another big debate in the fitness industry has always been the idea of clean versus dirty food. Um, mm. And I know you're you personally and also um, Alberto and other guys at 3 MJ are associated with if it fits your macros. Um, which I think has got a bit of a negative uh, rep recently. So do you want to talk about your opinion on if it fits your macros and clean versus dirty foods? I'd love to. Um, and 
I, I think I think there is very much kind of these these two camps uh, that are that are railing away at one another, and 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 both of them I kind of look at and facepalm a little bit. Um, I really try to avoid saying if it fits your macros, <laughs> just because of of kind of the way that culture is gone, like the kind of like the the picture of of having abs and eating a pop tart and then and then the 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 meme that says you mad, like that to me is just com- completely missing the point of of, of trying to find a a more balanced approach and focusing on the uh, the, the the important parts that really matter uh, of a diet and instead of kind of saying I'm smarter than all these bros and I still got abs you know what's up you know that that um, I, I, under, I understand where the counterculture came from um, but at the same time I don't think it's necessarily productive and it's both basically two two camps constantly strawmanning each other um, so my view on it is is just kind of that we need to take a step back and go okay look it's it's not all about macros of course not uh, that's why there are micros and other things like that and then especially among bodybuilders who develop very OCD food behaviors the leaner they get um, they can actually fulfill some of those uh, ridiculous examples that most of us shoot down of no someone wouldn't eat all their entire carb intake from ice cream that's ridiculous Yet I have actually had clients who've tried to do just that with with low fat and fat free non you know fat free ice cream and low fat ice cream, um, and it's because they have these insane food cravings because they're they're dieting down. Uh, so you, you can't just you know blindly uh, follow a plan that has has no respect to the nutritional quality of foods. But at the same time, that doesn't mean you can only eat a list of of six foods that are are you know bodybuilding approved. So. I think a really good way to look at nutrition is that, for the most part, there are very, very few foods that are actually bad for you, meaning that consuming them will make you less healthy. Uh, the problem comes, and you see this all the time in, in any kind of modern society, is that if you have all these, these foods that you know are quote-unquote bad, in reality, they're just lacking nutrition. It's not that they're harmful to you, it's just they don't have nutrients uh, that, that whole foods might. So they're they're lacking a good micronutrient profile. They're low in fiber, and and they just don't don't really do a whole lot for you. So it's it's kind of like consuming quote unquote empty calories, and this is only a problem when that's what dominates your intake. Because then you run into deficiencies from not consuming things. Not that you're getting hurt from consuming bad things, and I think that kind of turns the paradigm on its ear. Um, when, when, when I can explain to a bodybuilder, look, man, your diet shouldn't be exclusive, it should be inclusive, you know. Um, so we don't need to cut out Pop-Tarts or Snickers bars or, or what have you. We need to make sure we're getting our fruits and our vegetables and our whole grains and all the other things that are going to be there anyway if you follow a clean eating diet. But maybe you would have more variety and be able to satisfy a craving and be less have less of a feeling of restriction, being able to maintain um, you know your contest prep diet uh, with with less stress, and you'd probably get better results. In fact, I would venture a guess that you would. So, the way I look at clean versus dirty is really to stop making certain foods the bad guy. Um, take kind of the morals out of out of eating food, um, and and look at it as an inclusive versus exclusive diet. So have a lot of variety. Because, I mean, if you take any nutrition class, that's the big thing, that you know, eat your colors, that kind of thing. Um, you know, getting a lot of different uh, variety of, of nutritious foods. And then if you have, um, you know, macros left over, 
sure, have a Snickers bar. Why not? Especially if you're craving it and if that would help with your uh, dietary consistency for the rest of the, the, the period where, you know, you're, you don't feel like you're restricted. It doesn't take your grown-up card away, you know? <laughs> okay, so I guess the standard response to an argument like that is, but what about, um, you know, allergens like gluten and dairy and foods like that that kind of the paleo community demonize and say that we should be excluding regardless? Mm. Any diet where you ask someone to exclude uh, an entire food group that is very, very common is probably going to do more harm than good, to be honest. Um, and you only have to kind of look at the history of where we decided in the 90s uh, that, or sorry, the 80s, that, that fat was the bad guy. And the 90s that um, the glycemic index and it was what we had to, to pay homage to. And then in the 2000s, we decided, no, it had to be low carbs. And then now in the last decade, it's been, okay, no, it's, it's trans fats and uh, that's a big problem. And no, now it's specifically high fructose corn syrup. Oh, and now, no, actually, it's the uh, it's any foods that, that Paleo Man wasn't consuming, despite the fact that uh, we really aren't sure what Paleo Man did consume, and we continually find um, people of different ages having grains in their teeth. And we, you know, nutritionists are not anthropologists, and anthropologists are not nutritionists. That's one thing. But uh, point being is that we continually want to find the smoking gun that has led to the, the current obesity epidemic and, um, and you know, issue, uh, the metabolic disorders we have. And that, that black and white thinking of, that leads us to obesity or tries to fight it by being very, very restrictive are honestly, in my opinion, uh, two sides of the same coin. We're looking for a quick get-fix answer uh, because we're not willing to take a hard look at society and say, uh, what are the problems we have? And it has it's a very, very multifaceted issue. Uh, it has to do with the fact that we have food abundance and we're a, a species that got here based on survival. It has to do with uh, the way our, our families um, you know, value eating and, and our social constructs and uh, the, the, the cost of food and our advertising. And, uh, and I mean, it has to do with so many things that, that the idea that we can simply just remove dairy or gluten uh, and fix the problem is is probably just going to be you know in 15 years we're going to talk about the the paleo decade you know just, just like, like we, we talked about, about the low carb, carb decade and, and it, it won't, won't solve the problem. problem and until we recognize that until we're not trying to find one solution to a multifaceted problem we won't fix it then we're going to keep going through this game of uh, pointing the finger at the bad guy who's really just one of many or or not related to it at all. Um, and in the specific answer to your question, I kind of went on a sociological rant there. Um, <laughs> if you have a problem with dairy or gluten or wheat, don't eat them. You know, the beauty of if it fits your macros is, is you can be paleo on it if you want. Um, you can be a uh, you can have any allergy or, or food intolerance that you actually have or believe you have, and and still be able to, to pay attention to the important. Uh, Important details for, for body composition change, which is going to be energy balance and having a good macronutrient profile. So if you, if it, if you don't like eating it, don't eat it. If it makes you feel bad, don't eat it. That's fair enough, really. It seems yeah. like your um, your main message is that the fundamentals are the most influential factors for maintaining good results and that the cause of obesity, from what you said, is a much more deep-seated issue, um, mm -hmm. which, yeah, which certainly makes sense in that the fact that in, if people are looking for the, the quick fixes, 
that you know they can make one minor tweak and that'll solve all of their problems, which it's something that you'd be willing to believe if you think it's going to make results. Um, oh, yeah. One of the things that we've kind of been arguing about in terms of gluten is, I don't know if you've read quite, a, there was a scary article by Rob Wolf on Tim Ferriss's website where he discusses the detrimental effects of lectins and gluten on transglutaminase uh, in the body, mm. um, causing uh, autoimmune dysfunction. Um, mm. I wonder if you have read anything about that or what your opinion would be. I haven't. Um, and, uh, and, and it definitely sounds like a little more mechanistic and, uh, and physiology specific than my brain tends to operate in. Um, I'm a pretty big global thinker. You know, I'll read the details, I'll learn, I'll learn the analytical side of it, and then I'll figure out what that means, what do I do with it, and then that kind of information will fade out of my brain. Um, but uh, I can say that we just have to think about the magnitude of effect of any one of these things. And um, in an alarmist article, and it sounds like you're describing it that way, I don't want to misbrand it. Um, if it's scary. So an article that's very scary, um, my general opinion is that if you have to read the article to be scared about something you've been doing for your whole life, it's probably not as scary as the article's making it seem to be. Well, um, yeah, and I, I mean, it's slightly confounded by the fact that I think Johnny mentioned that Rob Wolf himself had an autoimmune disease that hospitalized him in the past, mm. and so it's likely that uh, he's going to be more scared than the rest of us when it comes oh, to yeah. uh, gluten. Yeah, and that's, that's very understandable. You know, we view the world and our, our, our fellow humans through the lens of our own experience. I mean, that's how we relate to one another. That's how the the biggest tragedies in history and, and the best things in history have happened. So I, I don't think it's at all strange or, or even uh, something to, to, to get mad about, uh, that, that someone's personal experience will, will color an article. Um, you know, I think, I think we all do that. And it's, I think for anybody who has a serious issue with gluten, that's, that's probably a, a good article for them to read. But for people who don't, if you have to read the article to know that you have a problem with gluten, you probably don't have a problem with gluten. Well, at the end of the day, if your solution is, um, if you think you have a problem with gluten, uh, drop it, see what happens, and then uh, reintroduce it. You can't really go wrong with that. Yeah, and, and to be honest, it's, I'm not saying these, these, uh, these intolerances and allergies don't exist, because I've certainly had people who have issues with certain foods, and, and just like you said, what I do is I tell them, hey, let's not eat that for a week, see how you feel, then we add it back in. Uh, sadly, what happens with most people is they'll cut out like five food groups all at the same time. You know, they'll remove every possible al allergen and feel better, and then then that, that's what they're sold on. Um, and I, I think there are a lot of people who will who will have a very short list of foods, and it's probably just because you know eighty percent of them were taken at the same time as some other uh, food they actually had a problem with, and. You know, it's, it's difficult to separate those confounding variables unless you do it in a systematic way and you isolate them. Well, I suppose if you withdraw them all at once and then at the end of the week have a, you know, a couple of pizzas and a, um, a gallon of milk, it's, uh, <laughs> it's not going to be, uh, it's not, it's not going to be pretty, let's say. <laughs> no, no. Um, yeah, I, I know what you're alluding to and I think yeah. that's, that's definitely, uh, probably not the best approach, so. I don't want to, um take up too much of your time, but one more thing I wanted to ask you is just in your everyday life, what, what do you say you strive for? 
You know, to be honest, um, this is something that I, I don't think I've shared this, but my, my goal on a day-to-day basis is to be able to go to bed and, and ask myself, did I make a, a positive or a negative impact today? Um, and extremely subjective and probably makes me happier than it does make the world a better place. But my goal is to feel like uh, what I'm doing in the course of my life is, is improving things. Um, and I mean that on a, on a very, very broad scale. That could be, you know, helping someone who is, you know, w- with the copy machine at work, who's clearly stressed out and just kind of taking a second out of my day when, you know, even if I'm busy and doing that. Um, and I've combined kind of that, that philosophy with my passion, which is, uh, very closely tied to, you know, bodybuilding and, and powerlifting and, and, and strength and physique sport and the science behind it. And that's kind of how myself and the other three coaches at 3D Muscle Journey operate. Um, we try to make sure that um, we're, we're, we're doing something positive. And because we, we, we've, we've been very saddened by how much a lot of good intentioned, intelligent people um, really spend too much time and energy just, just really beating each other down and, and creating those divisions in those, in those two camps, you know. When in the end, if you ask them what their goal was and what they wanted to get to, they would probably tell you very similar things. And I, I just don't think that's positive. I think, um, you know, ego and and uh, and and a lot of other issues create this, this, these divisions, which we try to get get around. And, that, and that's one thing um, I've gotten further and further away from is, is you know, internet flame wars or um, being attached to my my approach or my company uh and obviously i am i mean it's hard to get away from your ego but um but but trying to to try to remind myself what am i doing this for and that it is i want to do something positive i want to help people um and i want to leave a mark on the industry not just so i have a legacy but also so that it is actually better so that that is what i strive for on a regular basis basis. and that extends into my my personal life as well I think that's a fantastic approach, and uh, I'm sure we've all seen examples of the destructive attitudes in fitness industry and beyond. <laughs> so yeah. it's good that, that you're consciously making a difference in that. Or consciously convincing that myself, I at least. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one last thing before you go, um, I know uh, before we started recording, we touched a little bit on on training and and how that's possibly guiding your research at the moment. Um, just whether we could discuss a little bit about the, the reactive training system stuff and the, the RPE-based training system, um, yeah. what your thoughts are on that and why that might be a better option than standard linear periodization or other similar approaches? For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I kind of – I've always wanted to – you know, much like I um, – I talked about how I kind of auto-regulate people's diets. Um, this is an idea that um, has been around, at least I think the first time I was aware of it was in Mel Sift's super training. He talked about um, auto-regulated periodized training in a brief like page and a half. Um, and I think that sparked a lot of interest because that's one of the seminal books in, in training. And uh, there's a guy, uh, a couple guys actually, there's Borge Fajerli, who does his um, his mile reps and an auto-regulated uh, base training system based on fatigue stops and uh, an RPE. And there's also um, powerlifting champion and coach uh, Mike Tuscherer, um, 
who uses what's yeah the reactive training systems you're talking about, where instead of programming based on a percentage of one rep max, he uses an RPE and pairs that with a target rep or rep range, and then dictates volume uh, based on what's called the fatigue percentage, just where you 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 drop that initial load, um, typically done done with a back offset kind of format, and then you complete sets at a reduced uh, load until you hit a certain RPE again, so that based on your level of recovery uh, that day and your readiness that day, uh, your volume will, will match your readiness. And then if you couple that with a progressive periodization scheme, utilizing those kind of programming methods, um, I've seen, Borg has seen, Mike's seen, that you can typically get better results if you've got the right attitude and a, and a sound kind of system than someone who's following a more linear progression scheme who's not being observed by a coach. Because um, coaches... Coaches know this, that all, all S&C coaches and, uh, and people who are personal trainers in person are already doing auto-regulation. They'll tell you, oh, man, you're looking like shit today. Let's not do that last set. Or, wow, you're looking good. Let's go even heavier or something like that. So it's really it's, it's a way of trying to put that, the, the, the coach's eye into a systematic tool that uh, someone can use when they don't necessarily have someone looking over their shoulder. Because um, it's so difficult, to be honest with yourself, when you're so emotionally tied into your progress. Um, so anyway... I've been kind of talking nutrition a lot for about two years now that I've been kind of focusing my master's thesis on protein intake. And um, as I'm, you know, also as a bodybuilding coach, you, you pretty much have to be, uh, well, if, to be a good bodybuilding coach, you have to be really in tune with, with the nutritional side of the science. But very much so, I've, I always have been and still am extremely interested in the training side of it. And uh, what I wanted to do here in New Zealand was to do some research in both areas. So now as I move on to my Ph.D., uh, which I'll probably be starting at the end of the year, I want to actually research autoregulatory training systems. And I actually had a, God, I want to say it's like an hour and a half long conversation with Mike T. over uh, – Mike Tuchera, the inventor of reactive training systems over Skype, and uh, we were talking about what that might look like. What studies would we do? How could we systematically compare traditional periodization to a reactive, or sorry, a, an auto-regulated system, um, and actually get that out in the in the academic uh, strength conditioning uh, literature, and um, make that accessible to strength conditioning coaches from a lot of different areas, and see does it have application outside of um, Outside of powerlifters, and and you know, can this be a better better way to go? And if not, um, you know, why not? And and then you know, I guess I'll just Michael just like you know, kill me because I published research that said it doesn't work. But I don't think that's going to happen. You know, the the field research, the, the the field testing that we've we've both done over the years it says that there's something here, and um, you know, it makes sense. You know, working working in a dynamic system, so the more dynamic you can make your training, so long as it's matched with the dynamic system. Um, of being a person, it means you should be getting better results. So it's just about how do you actually design a program around that, uh, not whether it works or not. Because we know the theory works. It's just can we get a, a practical system that can be applied to various areas. So that, that's what I'm going to be doing probably for the next three or four years. Yeah, I think it's um, that's very exciting. I've personally, I've yeah, had experiences that kind of match with what with what Mike says, and that you know you'll have a hard week at work. Or you know, stressful time, and it's a the week that your program tells you that you should be maxing out or going for a heavy single, um, mm -hmm. and you don't make it. And then the following weeks, your program deload when you feel better and you wish that you could try the max that week. 
Um, so it's just, I think it's easy for, for linear programs to have this mismatch, which was with, with, with what's actually going on, um, yeah. in your own life, which I think is definitely where RPEs and fatigue percents and things like that could really come into their own. So some formal research on that would be fantastic. Yeah. So, and, and there has, and, and another, another thing I forgot to point out, there has been a little bit of research into this area. There are a couple studies. Actually, I wrote an article that, that got published on the, uh, the National Strength Conditioning Association's uh, Hot Topics article series, which is basically a, um, a peer-reviewed short, short topic series where uh, various researchers publish articles. And I wrote uh, an article called Practical Autoregulatory uh, Strength Training. And I went over two studies that looked at different auto-regulating uh, programs. And one was uh, based off of what uh, Mel Siff talked about in super training, where essentially your fourth set is dictated by the, by the uh, performance of your third. So very limited, um, that proved to be better than, than a matched volume uh, traditional program. And then the other one um, was a, uh, a very simple one where they asked the, the guys every day to give a, an energy rating level. Like, how do you feel, 1 to 10? And they would match them with a heavy, light, or moderate load uh, training day that day. Um, and, and they did better than a matched volume program where the, those, those days were set. So there, there, is, there is some limited research there already. It's just not necessarily – it's just kind of the very beginnings. You know, those, those are very simple ways of doing it, and they're effective. So if we can get a more complex system without, without confounding too many things, which I think – you know, why and reinvent, reinvent the wheel? I talked to Mike. I was like, you know, you've got a system that works great. Let's put this through the ringer, maybe adjust it a little bit, see if we can come out with something better, see where it works when it doesn't. So I, I'm, I'm pretty excited. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether you've had any exposure to Mike's um, track software. I don't know whether you've spoken to him about that. We did talk about that. We talked about that a good bit. And, you know, it used, it used in conjunction with with auto-regulated training, it can be effective. You know, is, is it less or more effective than things like HRV? Not sure. Uh, it has some advantages, some pros and cons over the others. So we chatted about that. But I, I think what I do want to be able to, to do is, is get a system that someone can use who has nothing besides a weight room and, and a, uh, a set of rules to kind of go on so that it's extremely flexible. You know, because I was at a, at a big meeting with some of the S&C coaches here at the National Training Center, and there was, they were talking about everything from testosterone cortisol ratio to HRV to jumping on a force plate to kind of get your, uh, your, some kinetic, uh, you know, measurements that, you know, you compare to kind of your baseline to all predict performance. But really, I, I want to be able to just skip the middleman, you know, instead of, uh, getting a, a readiness rating, which may or may not tell you all the different aspects of readiness, just find out how ready you are by training. Because even something like, for example, uh, one, one of the, the coaches there brought up how HRV, he does feel it accurately tells you uh, how recovered you are. Um, some guys, when they're, when they're terribly recovered, have an absolute killer training session. He was like, you know, that, that's just what it means to be a good athlete. You know, you, you feel like shit and you, and you pull it out of, the, uh, out of the fire. And then some of the S&C coaches um, were telling me how they, you know, they did, the, they did the force plate stuff. And it might tell them if they were fast that day, but... Fast isn't the same thing as, as heavy, st slow strength, and heavy, slow strength isn't the same thing as, as, as being very, very quick and explosive, um, which I can definitely corroborate now that I'm doing powerlifting and Olympic lifting. Sometimes I'll be ready to hit a good snatch, but I'm not strong. Um, 
So it's they're, they're, they're different components. And, and also how explosive you are doesn't necessarily tell you uh, how much stress you can handle. It doesn't tell you how much volume you could handle. So you'd have to figure out, and, and that's what Mike has tried to do with track, is to find a, a system that, that covers all those things. But I think even he would admit that um, it's, it's, there's too many things to try to track all at the same time. And then you still have to make a decision about what am I going to do about that. Um, and, and that leaves it open to coaching errors. So um, I, I think we're just going to kind of go for a pure uh, programming method that's built much like Mike does um, with his clients who don't use track. Just, uh, you know, fatigue percents, RPEs, and maybe some other system that we come up with. But um, the, I think the goal will be to develop a programming system based on biofeedback, essentially. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I have actually, I've actually had personal experience with both track and HRV, and mm. I think the conclusion that I reached was that you essentially end up following a program of sorts by the end of it because you'll go into the gym already having this prediction saying, oh, well, I'm under recovered mm. today, so that means light training, or that means reduced volume, or you know, um, HRV is, is improved, so that means go heavy today. And that's not you, – you've almost – killed the order regulatory part of it already um, yep. and you're following what something else tells you to do so I don't know I, I certainly look forward to your research yeah and on that note there was there was a couple of guys who had played with HRV and, and one guy was saying two coaches do the exact opposite thing with HRV um, one coach wanted to see his guys become better at recovery and um, being able to handle stress so when they felt crappy he wouldn't give them a light workout he would still give them a moderate stress workout to kind of train their recoverability because your adaptive reserve in and of itself is, is trainable. Um, you know, your ability to handle volume changes. So it's, it's a dynamic system within a dynamic system. And, and the other coach was following it just like you said, you know, you feel like crap, we don't train. It's again, it becomes subjective, even though it's supposed to be more objective. It's like you get this data and then, you know, what do you do with it? While having a, a periodization or a progression plan that's built around autoregulation, where you still try to have some kind of format to to push up the weights or, or whatever variable you're trying to, you know, muscular endurance or, or, or what have you, um, that you're trying to augment, you still have what Mike would call a controlled aggressive personality. So, you know, if if, you know, an RPE 9 for for 270 pounds might feel the same as 275, but if 270 is your current PR, then you should probably try 275. You know, so um, you have to have some kind of guardrails to make sure it's progressive, and uh, and, and that, that that seems to be key. Um, so I imagine it, we'll, we'll find out some of the limitations of it and, and what populations it might be appropriate for and and when it doesn't work. Because if it just gets you hanging out at homeostasis all the time, then you won't progress. You know, so that's true. And do you think that Maya reps is is kind of the the bodybuilding application to that, or a, a way of applying it to a bodybuilding circle? It is. I, I think um, the cool thing about Maya reps is it's it's just it's just a different goal because they're they're not necessarily looking for strength gains and and you know maximal force production. They're looking at uh, maximal fiber recruitment and then training those fibers to to an effective state. And so so yeah, I think. Uh, I think that is a very good way to look at it for for a bodybuilder, and of course you'll get a lot stronger if you're consistently getting, you know, good fiber activation and, and training it, and and you people will report that that they, they get stronger with myo reps, and he does a few other things to try to get the occlusive effects of you know limiting the range of motion to just the uh, the middle eighty percent and cutting off the, the top and the low ten percent, 
so that he's not, you know, sacrificing any, you know, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy that might come from uh, the kind of higher rep traditional training approach. So I, I think it is, I'm sure there, you know, the, the thing is, is you're only limited by your creativity. I, I'm sure there are other systems that could work. And in some parallel dimension, there's a, uh, a forged Bagheerly and a, uh, <laughs> a Taik Musher who, who, who developed different systems. So, I mean, they're certainly not the end-all be-all. It's, it's more that they, you know, these are probably the most popular ones that have kind of come to the forefront that work. That certainly work. Um, there's just too much. I think they're, they're both very analytical guys um, who do a good job with their clients and have gotten a, amount of, a long time of consistent feedback and have used traditional training as well. So they have a pretty good kind of field-tested uh, system either way. So I think they're both great systems. And, and yeah, they're just more so uh, for different goals. So, yeah. Great. Right. Well, I think uh, we've taken enough of your valuable time, Eric. So um, I just want to say... My pleasure. Uh, thank you very much for, for speaking to us. It's been very insightful. Um, and hopefully at some point in the future we can, we can speak again. I'd love to. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. It's been an honor. Eric, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. It went well. That was fun. That was a lot of fun. All right, guys. This is Johnny from Perfect Fitness, Eric Helms, and Yusef. Thanks.